This episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate, and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year, resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media. They will get the most recent and the best product they can get. And we, we also uh, ensure a recurring revenue that helps us to grow. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Mina, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. It's my pleasure to be here. You are the co-founder and CEO of Voliro. You are developing the world's most advanced flying robot for safe and efficient work at height. We're going to talk about your product, how you got there. But first, we want to focus on your personal background. After getting your BA from the Politecnico di Milano, you went to study robotics at the ETH in Zurich. And I wonder what actually brought you to Zurich from Milan? So uh, one of the main reasons uh, I wanted to come to Zurich for studying engineering is uh, the uh, closeness of the university to practical application. So uh, when we uh, study here at ETH um, engineering, we have much better chances to touch hardware and, and to do real practical work. And that's not always the case in, in, uh, in, in different areas. So that was one of the main uh, attractions for me to uh, um, get close to the real uh, implementation and hardware when, uh, when I wanted to study engineering. Makes sense. And also Zurich and Milano are not that far away from each other. Exactly. Was it actually difficult, you know, to, to have a foot in the door here and to, to move to Switzerland and get also the permit to study here? Was that a difficult uh, thing to do? Um, actually, not was not difficult. Was a smooth transition. Uh, of course, at the beginning, you uh, uh, you are coming to a new place, and there are all the challenges. But it, at the end, when I look back, it was not uh, an, an hard transition. Was was quite smooth. And you actually got excellent grades, like both in your BA, but also in your uh, master studies. In your experience, is it only the students with the top-notch grades who get to focus and actually fund successful companies afterwards? No, I think it's not. Uh, it's not related at all. Uh, um, it's it, the good grades show only maybe uh, dedication and and uh, interest, um, but it has no relation to future success after after graduation. So it's not. Uh, I don't think it's highly related to. Uh, uh, just like building successful company. Got it. But but I like the focus that you just said, like dedication and the hard work. Yeah. That's something that you can for sure also take away and apply to your own company. So ETH, you know, ETH, there are many successful spin-off stories out there. But I also wonder when you actually studied here, in, in what way does the ETH, but also like the, the associations around like the Entrepreneur Club at the ETH, support and also motivate you to start your own company? Were you, you know, touched or inspired by anything from ETH uh, to really get started with your own company? Yeah, definitely. I uh, basically during the, my study, mostly during the PhD, not, not only the master, but mostly during the PhD, I was uh, able to see different spin-offs coming out from ETH and growing. And uh, uh, the idea of building something that goes out on the market and, and being used by other people is, is very fascinating. It's not just uh, a prototype that you build in the lab and use it for some projects and it's over there. We, we, I was really inspired by 
seeing something out there that other people are using and uh, is creating value for, for other people. So that's why I was very interested to uh, move forward with this. And from our lab, we have a lot of uh, uh, history with spin-offs. Uh, I studied with Prof. Roland Siegwert uh, in, in the Autonomous Systems Lab. And uh, he is really uh, helping a lot and pushing uh, entrepreneurial uh, spirit in his team. So if someone comes with an idea that has potential, he would uh, support this to move forward. Uh, and I think there are around 15 companies already uh, uh, in operation out of, of our lab. So that's a very, very uh, a nice indication. Uh, great. Yeah. I want to learn more about uh, Roland in a, in a minute. But first, focus on uh, what you did after your master's studies. In 2015, you started a project called AeroWorks with the professor Costas Alexis. What was that project all about and why was it the right step after your master's studies? So um, Airworks was a, a project that aimed to develop what we called aerial robotic worker. So it's basically the very uh, uh, core idea of how Volero developed uh, afterwards. And the idea was basically that we wanted to have flying robots that can approach structure and do lightweight inspection and maintenance jobs, not only uh, um, visual inspection or flying cameras, but can do more than just that. And uh, the project was supported by the European uh, Commission with a, uh, with a Horizon 2020 grant. It lasted for uh, three years and we started to explore what are potential applications uh, for such a solution, a robotic, flying robotic solution can, uh, can add to society and, and uh, uh, to improve the maintenance and inspection of infrastructure. Um, and the project uh, started was led by a um, Swedish university, Dule University, uh, and uh, it was a consortium of several uh, industrial and uh, university uh, academic partners as well. Got it. And let's also focus, you know, on AeroWorks as like the basis for Volero afterwards. So in what way has this project actually contributed to the launch of your own startup afterwards? Um, so within AeroWorks, we, we try to look into what potential applications could come out from uh, having a tool that can fly and perform physical work. So uh, we understood very early that there is a lot of market, a lot of need for such an application, uh, but the technology was not ready uh, during Airworks. So during Airworks, we were exploring different possibilities, different tools that can be used for such an application. Uh, and actually during Airworks, we came with the idea of uh, tiltable rotors or Volero's uh, drones. And, uh, and then we saw the benefit of having this kind of uh, new development and, and it, it took off from there. Awesome. And then in 2019, you actually founded Volero uh, together with, in total, five co-founders. That's a pretty high number. So how, first of all, did you meet your co-founders? And second, how do you actually split their roles and made it work as a team? Because five is still like, I would say, at the top end of uh, the ideal number of, of co-founders that people suggest to have. Yes. Um, so we knew each other fr uh, from before. So we worked together in the in the lab, and we we had uh, we all have complementary skills in uh, in the company. So they were all uh, needed to basically make Volero a success. Mm -hmm. So we uh, tried to distribute the roles based on what everyone uh, is good at and uh, is willing to also uh, to do and enjoys doing. So we uh, uh, we have people who have experience in automation, in uh, perception, in navigation, because we have a vision with Volero to move forward towards automated inspection. It's not only just manual flights or uh, uh, with a pilot uh, uh, op uh, pilot operated drones. We want to move forward to automation, to data analysis, and all these steps will need special skills. And we think we have the right team to uh, to do that. Awesome. 
And also, I wonder, like, with five co-founders in total, how do you actually make decisions? Of course, it's an uneven number, so that actually helps. Um, so there needs to be a decision if you vote. But how does that show in practice? How do you make decisions with five co-founders and also make sure that you don't lose too much speed because you need to involve everyone all the time? So what we try to establish very early is ownership in different areas. So everyone is responsible for certain uh, area in the company and they basically are responsible and, and accountable for the, the areas they are responsible for. Decisions that are regarding the ownership and the, the whole company structure, of course, these take a bit of time to, to discuss and convince everyone. Um, but day-to-day -day operation, uh, uh, we, don't, we don't have to vote on every decision. We try to uh, assign roles and responsibilities. And we, we also, of course, have a certain degree of trust that people will take the right uh, decision when, they have, when it's regarding their, uh, their area. Got it. Seems like a, a good setup for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's take a step back and look at the market opportunity at hand. So we, we now understand where you come from and that there was like a, a, a gap in the market that you identified and then also filled with Valero. But let's also focus on the exact problem that you solve. So for your clients, what's the, the specific problem that you address and solve with your company? So we are trying to uh, make inspection much easier, faster and cheaper. Um, and clients want always to find a way to reach an accessible area uh, in an easy way. And what we offer with Volero is a flying drone that can also approach and touch the structure. And um, up to today, uh, drones were mostly used only for visual inspection. So you go in confined space or outside and collect pictures, thermal images. But there is always a problem that uh, uh, in certain areas you need also to perform non-destructive testing or in-depth inspection to find corrosion or uh, structural uh, problems that you don't really see with a camera or with a thermal uh, camera. And, and there the only way to do it is by building scaffolds. So you build very expensive scaffolds and climb up on an expensive on a structure to collect these readings. And that's that's very uh, costly. And at the end, the job is lightweight job. It's not uh, hard uh, or tough uh, work to do. That's why we wanted to go in with Volero and offer a flying tool to our customers so they can uh, get into inaccessible areas, uh, whether it's at height or in confined spaces, and perform also uh, work that would require touching or physical work with a flying robot, which is very agile and flexible. And uh, of course, we start with the inspection, but we have plans to move forward also towards lightweight maintenance jobs. So we want to uh, offer solutions that can do uh, inspection and maintenance for capital intensive assets. Got it. And I can imagine that, you know, the, the physical work that you replaced there, that can also be pretty dangerous work every now and then. Are there any like statistics or data that you can like share with us about, you know, workplace uh, injuries maybe that happen because of these, these kind of type of work and how you can make that safer with your solution? That's in workplaces, uh, um, the number one reason or uh, I would say no, no, number two reason of death in workplaces is falling from height. So people falling from height is one of the most dangerous uh, situations. And uh, if you build scaffolds or hire a rope access team, uh, you always have the risk that someone might fall off the scaffold and, and uh, you endanger uh, uh, the people, right? So you have to, especially in areas where you, the safety requirements are not always met, uh, like uh, in, in areas where you uh, don't uh, have very strict following on, on the regulation of safety of, of people. So we want to reduce this and let people really go on height only if it's really needed to perform a large job. A lightweight inspection and maintenance jobs could be done by robots. So we, we always say let, let the robots do the dirty job and, uh, and let people stay on the ground, not, uh, not up there. 
yeah, if a robot or a drone fails from above, nobody gets hurt, ideally, uh, yeah. unless you hit someone, yeah. uh, but you don't fall from height. So uh, that's much, much safer. Exactly. How often does that actually happen? Are there any public numbers available? You know, how often that somebody actually falls from height and gets seriously injured or even dies uh, per year, per month for any number that you have? Um, I think around 30,000 deaths per year are happening due to falling from heights. Um, that's a very rough number that we, we came up with by looking at statistics, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a serious number. So we try to reduce that. Yeah. And you also said that for now you focus on, on the lightweight work that you can also like already conduct with your drones. So do you have any specific examples what that actually means for people that might not be that familiar with the industry? So, for example, one uh, uh, one challenge is if uh, you start to see uh, small spots of corrosion building up on your asset or small spots of uh, of uh, pitting or uh, um, loss of paint on a structure, the protective painting or coating of, of, of assets, let's say, for example, storage tank or pipes at height. And you want to just fix this small spot and you don't need a lot of force or any special uh, uh, skills to do it. You can do it with a flying robot that can approach this structure and perform this lightweight uh, coating job or spraying job. Um, also, it can include uh, uh, lightweight scrubbing of the surface or cleaning of the surface. So these kind of lightweight jobs that doesn't require uh, uh, lifting of heavy equipment and, and uh, uh, performing very uh, uh, physically re uh, demanding jobs. Nice. Sounds like the future is just around the corner from my perspective or already here. When talking about launching a startup, people often also talk about timing. Why is the right time to actually launch right now with the product or the service at hand? So for Volero, why was the right timing to, to start in 2019? One of the main reasons is that we saw basically that uh, um, there is a very strong push and need from big oil and gas companies and uh, petrochemicals and infrastructure companies to uh, optimize their operation to uh, uh, to provide faster and cheaper uh, to, to to get faster and cheaper solution to maintain and and inspect their assets so this that was basically the right time to also um, push a new technology on the market and we see a lot of interest from from these uh, large customers that they would like to explore find better ways to do their jobs uh, now if if we would say five or ten years ago probably that was not uh, really the case uh, um, um, uh, optimizing the operation was not what everyone was looking for sustainability is not what everyone was uh, focusing on now it's uh, it's more uh, prominent topic for every every company because the competition is also kicking in regarding uh, energy in the energy sector so we see that uh, optimizing operation is is one of the key uh, factors that made us move right now so you basically see different trends aligning at the same time and that can then actually result in a good timing. Exactly. And also, of course, the technology maturity. So we, we now have better uh, um, um, components that you can buy. The, the computer science is progressing. The, the uh, um, computers are getting smaller, faster. So it's time to push really for, for automated and, and more integrated solutions. And I think that's then where the magic happens, right? You have the, the push basically or the the ask, the demand from the market, uh, where the different trends align, but then you also have the technology that makes it possible to actually surf that. And exactly. that's a very nice sweet spot to address. Yeah, exactly. So when building a company, usually you also face uh, some obstacles along the way that you need to solve and overcome. One thing that probably is something that keeps you busy like from day one on is that your co-founders, you all come from a research background. 
But you know, when building a company, you actually also need to, to market and to sell things. So how did you actually make up for that missing part, at least as it seems from the outside? Mm -hmm. So very early on, we also onboarded uh, business figures on, uh, in the company. So we knew that we, we have this challenge. So we tried to uh, also get on board a business figure or people with business background to help us. And uh, um, we always had uh, very, support, uh, very much support from our advisors. So we involved very early on advisors who were involved in many companies and they know uh, the key challenges. And, and that helped us a lot. And one of the main um, ideas we had is that we also want to learn about the, the business area and how we can basically uh, create a, a great company or successful company. So that, that was also very helpful that we knew that we have this, uh, uh, let's say, uh, challenge coming ahead and we were prepared to, to push to, uh, to address it. Nice. I think that's actually the right way because, you know, having the technical background and then learning the business part is probably easier than having the business background and then learning the technical part, I could imagine. Yeah. Still, I could imagine that many ETH spin-offs or startups actually face that challenge. Like, hey, we have a very strong technical background, but we, we lack the business background. So where did you find it beyond your advisors? Where did you then actually get and onboard the business knowledge for your company? Were there any resources or talent pools that you could access? Yeah, for example, we, we were part of several coaching sessions by let's say Venture uh, venture Kick and, and Venture Lab. So that was very helpful to uh, also learn about uh, um, the challenges. And at the end, if you abstract the technology, the business is at the end uh, very similar in different areas. So uh, the, the technology is solving a problem, but the, the core of the businesses are uh, is quite similar. So the learn, abstracting the learning and the trying to apply it on our use case uh, was a very nice uh, uh, learning for us. There was a very steep learning curve for, for the whole co-founding founders, founders team. Absolutely. Was it also a discussion in, in the beginning, in the early days to, to have a business co-founder in, in your co-founding team? Was not strongly proposed or discussed. No, okay. we, we also wanted to learn this and push for it so that was not really strongly discussed of course hiring business people that that's definitely uh, on our roadmap and to get more and more and more and more people in the business area uh, but involving on day one uh, business figure that was not really something that we heavily discussed is there any structured way of you know getting the customer feedback so that you don't just follow a trial and error principle but actually gather structured feedback to then also be able to make the, the best decision possible on how to move your product forward, but also how to probably ad adapt your pricing and business model behind it. So we always try to uh, start the, the customer journey, what we call the customer journey, with a, a very uh, a detailed discussion on how they would use this product and what are they willing to pay for it. And then uh, we move to a, what we call a proof of concept, where we show them how the product can be used on their use case and uh, collect feedback from them about the, the product during a phase of a proof of concept. That then translates into uh, or moves into what we call an early adopter program where the customer will get a system for six months. And we try to be very selective about the customers who would get this system because we try to uh, be strategic about the feedback we collect from, from the customers. So we select areas that we think they will grow and uh, they will really have a lot of demand in the future. So we, we select customers for the early adopter program based on, on that. And then we, we go to the general availability where the drone will be basically available for, for, uh, for usage um, for the customer. And, and we try to offer a whole package around it for servicing, maintenance and upgrades. So the drone is always upgraded and has the most recent features for all customers. 
at the, at the same time. And that's, I guess, also how you then access recurring revenue, right? So you don't sell a product that they buy once and say, here you have it, now we're done. You actually sell the upgrades, the, the new products and so on. And that's how you actually get the recurring revenue, everything that you're basically looking for as a startup. Exactly. I mean, recurring revenue is very interesting to have for a, for a startup, but it has to also make sense for the customer. And as long as the customers like uh, likes your product, they will be paying to get the additional services around around the, the solution. So it, it's always a, a, a win-win situation for the customer and, and for us. They will get the most recent and the best product they can get. And we, we also uh, ensure a recurring revenue that helps us to grow. And I can imagine you know, first, like introducing a new technology in, in an existing market, probably the, the, the cost pressure there helped you, but that's like one challenge on its own. But then also introducing a new business model of instead of paying a one-time fee, having this recurring revenue, uh, the recurring subscription that they pay, that's a second challenge that you had to solve to really you know, convince them to, to be part of and become your client. How were you able to put both off at the same time? Drones are not very new for, for most of our customers. They already use drones for many inspections. They only use it on for, for visual inspection or for uh, uh, um, assessment of the structure with a camera. Now it's additional tool, so they already are aware of drones regulations. They already have pilots. So it's not really complete new uh, um, solution that they are uh, getting from their perspective. It's another drone that can do more than just visual inspection for them. But for uh, the business model, uh, we, we get basically different feedbacks. So uh, uh, many customers like it a lot and they say, yeah, that's awesome. We don't have to buy any, any uh, product anymore. We just have to pay for a service and you will maintain and upgrade the system. That's, uh, that's a very nice thing. They see it as a very positive uh, uh, model and some old uh, uh, old fashioned industries or, or companies they also say no we just want to buy a tool and just use it as is uh, for five to ten years and and of course you end up with an uh, outdated drone because it's, the technology is moving very fast so uh, you will either have to buy another one in two years or uh, um, go for a subscription model which is very uh, helpful for both sides. So that's true. Yeah. So how actually, how were you able to convince them, if at all? Did you try to convince them or did you just say, hey, we only do like uh, the recurring business model. Uh, there's no possibility of buying just a single product without the subscription. Or do you actually also offer that if uh, a company is asking for it? So uh, in some some regions also, we exp we found out that uh, subscription will not be an option at all. Like uh, in, in some areas in Asia or in the Middle East, it would be very hard to push the subscription model. Why is that the case? Um, different reasons. For example, who owns the hardware, uh, liability, uh, the mentality of the management in these companies. It's, it's, it's very hard to push just a subscription model. Uh, in some other areas, for example, in the UK or in the US, it was very, very uh, easy with, with certain customers. They, they loved it. They said, that's very nice. We, we would like that. Um, so it's a challenge. Uh, um, and we are also exploring and validating this model right so it's uh, it's an exploratory phase where we see if this model would work with everyone or we'll have to adapt along the way another obstacle but that you basically had or most likely still have to overcome is how to deal with uncertainty now when you build a startup you never know if you know all the facts you probably don't and uh, what will happen tomorrow basically in in some cases so how do you deal with that uncertainty can you actually use it in in a positive way or is it more of an energy consumption the distraction for you 
um, I think we use it in a positive way in, in the sense that we try to be agile and adapt very quickly. Um, sometimes you have to take decisions that change, uh, uh, stuff can change very fast. And of course, you find some resistance from uh, um, the te technical team that why are we doing this and now we are changing. And you have to explain or try to get people on board to understand that there is very quick changes and, and uh, we cannot have a very precise uh, uh, plan for the next five years. Things might change very fast and we have to adapt and be able to uh, change stuff very fast to, to and be agile basically and that's the beauty of a startup because we are small so we can we have to be agile as well true let's also talk about opponents and supporters you already mentioned uh, some of your supporters uh, like roland stigward for example please tell us a bit more how you actually work together in what way that he and the autonomous systems lab at the eth have actually supported you along the journey so far the core of the technology was developed at the autonomous systems lab so i, I was doing my phd and my co-founder uh, timo miller joined me as uh, initially as master student and then we uh, hired him as engineer to keep developing the, the solution with us um, so the autonomous systems lab basically offers you a lot of freedom you can work on what you like and try to push new stuff and the uh, new technology and the, the main motivation for everyone is to really see a new uh, uh, technology out, uh, uh, being um, uh, demonstrated or, or used in, in certain area and of course because it's academia so we also have to publish and make other knowledge available for everyone um, so that's a very interesting setting because once you have a mature enough solution, you can think about spinning it out and uh, ETH also supports this a lot. So you, you will get, uh, um, for example, here in, in Vis Zurich, that's uh, a place where you can push forward and bring the product out from the lab to the market with a lot of support from, from the university. So the Autonomous Systems Lab basically is, is, is a great place to uh, develop and, and explore uh, scientific work and also uh, um, push it to, to be a product if you, uh, if you uh, think that this can solve a real problem for people out there and if people have the entrepreneurial uh, mindset to push it out. Awesome. I also wonder in, in what way, I mean, of course, product development and future enhancement research is crucial for the, the business that you're in. But I also wonder in what way has you know, ETH or the whole research part in the background also helped you to, you know, for marketing purposes to win over sales? In, in what way is the, the research background also supportive in, in that regard, if at all? Mm -hmm. um... For example, we, we had certain collaboration with, with other universities uh, on the particular topic of inspection. So that, that's Imperial College, for example. Um, th they are very, very good in developing sensors for inspection. And this, we started this collaboration on integrating the sensor on, on the drone. And that immediately showed a lot of uh, uh, interest from, from end users. Because if you show uh, to oil companies or asset owners a drone that flies very nicely but has no sensing capability, they they are not very interested. So they want to really see the uh, full integration of a sensor and the drone and the real data collection capability that you can offer. So that was basically how research, uh, uh, the result from the research, which was basically pu published papers and, and videos, uh, helped us to get in contact with several end users who showed additional interest in getting the solution. So in that regard, research can actually also generate sales for you then? 
definitely it's also publicity and most of these companies they have R&D departments innovation departments they read the, the most recent publications and uh, and uh, and that helps also to get publicity and show also that there is a solid background in the solution it's not uh, um, it's it's not just a prototype but there is a solid scientific work behind it another part that of course often shows up are your investors. You closed a seed round this year with 2 million Swiss francs led by Alpana Ventures. Please talk a bit more about you know, what the money will be used for and how Alpana Ventures has also contributed as a supporter to your journey. So uh, the, the deal with Alpana was, was really easy going. They, they were very uh, supportive and helpful. Uh, we were mostly in contact with Alex Fries. Uh, one of Alpana's partners, and then we got to know the rest of the team uh, after uh, afterwards. And uh, the money will be mostly used to uh, uh, push the product to the market faster. So we uh, have the support from Visiorek, of course, but we needed more funding to to get more uh, engineers, especially experienced people that have. Uh, um, experience in uh, certifying a product and building uh, um, a product that can be really sold on the market. And the product development is a skill that you can build, but it takes a lot of time. So we needed to really hire experienced people to push uh, on this end. And uh, that will accelerate our time to market. That's the main uh, use of the fund that we, we raised, um, the two millions of the seed round. Um, and Alpana basically is, is a great, uh, a great investor to have on board. They support us also with advices, with uh, connections. Um, they follow up what is happening. What is uh, what, if we need any connection with with uh, someone, they might know that they will uh, uh, not hesitate to to put us in contact with them. So it's it's a really great investor to have. So on board. the support is beyond just the investment, the money part. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we try to also look for uh, when we get investors on board, that they can give more than just money, but more uh, support in different areas. So now we talked about the supporters. There are, of course, also opponents that you face. Some you can control, others you cannot. As the first one, regulations. That's something that can keep you busy and can also change. I think in our prep call, you mentioned to me that Switzerland might or might not join the EU drones regulations. Maybe you can give us a bit more context about the potential outcome and why this regulation is so important for you. So regulations is, is uh, regulations are key for for successful missions, and you need always to have uh, your um, your papers in 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 place to ensure uh, successful operation and also safety of everyone. And regulations is the way to to do that. Uh, we always try to see regulations as uh, a sword with two. Uh, um, um, two edges basically so one edge is it can help to ensure safety and uh, and successful operation but it also could uh, block many other applications of of uh, robotic uh, deployment or drones technology so we try to find the right balance between between these uh, these two and with the eu regulation it's actually a very nice uh, regulation framework that is coming out um, that will enable uh, uh, drones to be or the regulation to be unified all over Europe. Before it was count, uh, uh, depending on the country and on the local regulation, so you would have you would have to uh, check the regulation in each country separately. Having a unified regulation that's very helpful because once you have a permission to perform a mission, you have it basically everywhere in Europe. So that's uh, a very positive uh, uh, aspect. The, the negative aspect, of course, is that the regulation was not uh, fully clear. Um, for everyone. So there were, there were a lot of changes uh, back and forth and not very clear when it will be implemented fully. So the, that was a challenge and uncertainty that we had to uh, try to deal with. 
um, Switzerland might not be fully uh, part of the, of this uh, uh, EU regulation. It's not very clear yet. We are in constant discussion with uh, uh, Basel and with with different uh, um, uh, enti- entities to to see how this will proceed. Uh, one of the main reasons, of course, is uh, Switzerland has a strong uh, hobby uh, uh, drones hobby. Uh, uh, um, um, uh, community and uh, with the new regulation they would have to perform certain registration to be able to fly their uh, model RC or model drones. Uh, so they, that, that's that's one of the reasons why Switzerland might not join the full uh, new regulation of the EU, but it's still uh, an open topic and still in discussion. So we hope that we will find an, uh, an easy solution for it. As a startup, you cannot directly, you know, impact the decision that is coming there from the Swiss government, but also from the EU government, like the, the big companies, they have their lobbying yeah. uh, efforts that they put into place. So how do you actually position yourself as a startup if things might change also maybe drastically to a certain degree with new regulations that you need to follow? So how do you position yourself to be ready for the future, but also to not sort of limit what you do today because that can still take ages until it's actually uh, implemented. So how do you strike that balance about worrying about the future but also preparing for the future? So one of the key elements is basically constant discussion with these entities that are making the regulations and try to find the, the what they would like to see on our drone to give permissions to do the operations. And that's a constant discussion and updates that we do from our side. On the, on the drone to make sure that it would fit the new regulations and also try to uh, see what, what other um, rules they are planning to uh, implement. Uh, and, and one way, of course, is basically that most of the drone startups here in Zurich are in discussion and we are talking to other uh, companies. We, for example, um, uh, presented a letter uh, to, the, to the parliament here in, in uh, Switzerland urging them to join the EU regulation because that will help us in the future to just get one permission and use it everywhere in Europe. So we, we are trying also to, uh, to um, uh, generate uh, uh, awareness of the importance of uh, unified regulations that will help us to, uh, to move forward in the future. Make, make sure to also send that podcast link to the responsible people in the government. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do. <laughs> Another challenge or obstacle uh, opponent probably that you also face is corporate culture. You know, when you sell to a, a large company, um, it can take ages until you uh, reach a decision whether they want to buy your solution or not. How do you go about uh, solving that problem? That's a problem that is there and we have to deal with it. It takes time to uh, to uh, reach a decision in, in large corporates. They have budget uh, uh, distribution and they have... Uh, um, a, a quite uh, uh, long time decision making. Uh, sometimes we try to push, also try to reach out to the um, management that would approve a budget for, for certain projects. We try to reach out to them and try to make things move faster. Uh, but that's a, a challenge that is always there. How long does it approximately take for you to, to close a deal? Uh, it can take six months, for example, to, to close a deal with, with, a, with a corporate uh, or even, even longer. So six, six months and then you have the contract, the reviews of the contract and all these uh, details. So it right. might take even a bit longer. Yeah. Was there anything that you tried and you know, worked well to actually shorten that cycle? Showing, showing them the, the, the benefit of the technology and trying to reach out to uh, uh, the right people within this, this corporate will, will definitely help. Um, 
that that's the only way we try to to push forward to accelerate this uh, this time and sometimes it works now let's also look a bit you know at the current state and the future you now have uh, 15 uh, full-time employees working for you uh, you also closed the two million seed rounds that we just uh, heard more about we also had alex freeze on the podcast actually and his model is you know looking for technology startups in switzerland but then helping them to actually expand to the us so what is next for for Voliro? Are you planning to go to the US market and actually also like open an office there or what are your future plans? Definitely that's one of the plans, uh, but that will happen once we reach certain maturity degree of the product. So once the product is is mature enough, we we, we can start to do this and open uh, uh, maybe an office in the US. And of course, in Asia is, is very uh, Asia is very attractive market, especially Singapore. So we will definitely look at, uh, at that as well. Um, our next step will be basically uh, once we have the product uh, being deployed on small scale on the market, then we will uh, go for the A round where we will get basically additional fund to, to grow the, the deployment of the product. Is there a rough timeline on that? Like when you would like to raise the A round and also how much you would like to raise there approximately? Um, the timeline we, we expect towards mid to end the next year, so towards uh, towards Q3 2021, maybe uh, next year, and and the amount is is not uh, is not fully fixed yet. We we expect something between five to ten millions. It's a very broad range, but that's what we expect. <laughs> so to conclude this episode, we always like to ask our guests about their personal gadgets and resources that they can recommend. Are there any books or blogs, podcasts, also personal gadgets like a tech gadget or whatever comes to mind that you use yourself on a personal basis or a regular basis, actually? Uh, for example, uh, uh, one of the personal gadgets I, I use often is is my uh, sports watch, the, the the Garmin watch, which basically tracks all my activities and uh, uh, is, is, is very helpful for me to also see uh, um, um, if I'm doing enough movements and enough sports or not, because that's, uh, that helps because you can get lost on your desk for many hours and then that's, uh, that's a, a problem. So it would warn you, you need to move now and, and uh, do some, uh, some movement. That's uh, one interesting uh, gadget that I'm, uh, I'm currently using. Um, um, in, in terms of books, I, I really uh, um, like uh, um, um, a book called uh, Dare to Lead, which basically helps how to uh, interact with people and, uh, and build a successful team culture and, and push that uh, in, a, in a nice way. So that's, that's one of my favorite books that uh, I just finished reading recently. And now to actually finish this episode, we have some rapid fire questions for you. I either give you a choice of two or three options or a short question and you can answer in one or two sentences. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. So the first one is regular office or home office? Home office. Why? Because you have a manufacturing part here in the cellar. Um, personally, I like home office. I, I enjoy working from home. Um, of course, the hardware team will have to, to come to the office because we need the hardware to, to work on, but I enjoy home office. It's, uh, it gives you more flexibility and you can be more productive. Got it. And what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, to focus on, on important stuff, not get distracted by, there are many distractions. So focusing is very important. What is like one distraction that you got rid of? For example, when we uh, when we started the company, we had in, in mind so many applications. We had so many uh, crazy ideas we wanted to go for. And, and at some point we had to uh, 
narrow our focus on one application and start with that. So that was, uh, that was of course a distraction because every customer comes with a different idea, with a new application and they won't use your solution for it. And it's very tempting because we are at the end engineers and we like to try new stuff. So we, we had to uh, uh, reject many uh, crazy ideas and focus on one, on one uh, um, market or one direction. Nice. Building or selling? Building, yeah. Engineer at heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Where do you actually go to think? I like to walk around the lake. Uh, that's uh, uh, the lake of Zurich. I like walking around uh, the lake and thinking about whatever I have in mind. That's where I go to, to think. Yeah. And the last one for you, you have Egypt roots, uh, spent time in Italy, now live in Switzerland. So Switzerland, Italy or Egypt? Um, that's a very hard question. <laughs> um, every every place has different different uh, uh, character, right? So in, in in Egypt, for example, the family and the, and the home and, and and all of this experience of very young uh, or very uh, old friends. Uh, in Italy, uh, new friends that I, I knew quite well, and and also the nightlife in Milano and all all these uh, interesting uh, uh, um, uh, adventures in in Milano, and then Switzerland is more about the, the work and the nature, and and it's every place is different. So, for example, I would go back to Milano every two three weeks for a day or two, uh, see for old friends and. Uh, um, yeah, it's very hard to choose. It's, they're all great places and I enjoyed living in all of them. So there's not a single choice. It's basically depending on the occasion. Exactly. Yeah. Depending on the, on the occasion. That's makes sense. That's true. Yeah. Mina, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's, it was a pleasure talking to you and an impressive journey that you've walked so far. And we wish you and Volero all the best for the future and look forward to the opening of your US office in the Series A, hopefully soon. Thank you for having me and uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>